Okay, well welcome everybody. It's good to have you here for our 9.30 uh, Bible study. And we're going to be um, carrying on with our study of the 1689 Confession. We're going to look at the uh, first few chapters of that confession. I'm not sure quite how long we'll go, uh, but we'll get through a few. And um, we began this last week, and last week you'll remember we did sort of a history, um, uh, setting the historic context for the development of and writing of the um, Second London Baptist Confession, otherwise known as the 1689 Confession. Now this website, this is just a website uh, which you can get the confession for free. Uh, so I, I think it's literally just 1689.com or something like that. Um, so if you want a free um, version of it, you can just go there on your phone. Otherwise we've got it on the screen. Um, otherwise you can be fancy like me. And I picked up this really lovely looking copy of, that's not just our confession, that, <laughs> otherwise you'd be worried. That's, uh, this is most of the confessions, the most famous ones, and it includes our one. And so I, I bought that thinking it'd be good to have a good hot copy um, of our confession. <clears throat> but uh, Joe's going to be moving us through um, chapter one um, of the confession. Chapter one being, of course, on uh, the Holy Scriptures. Uh, of the Holy Scriptures. We talked last time about how confessions might be set up and what ought to be the first chapter and there's an argument that could be made for um, really taking any of the chapters as the first chapter in many ways. Um, you could take Doctrine of God, you could take Doctrine of Creation, you could even take uh, Eschatology, the last things, as your first chapter being that that's the ultimate goal where everything is headed. Uh, but um, coming out of the Reformation I think is the, the, the real reason for putting scripture at the beginning is that the Reformation was a, um, a reforming around the scriptures. It was a, a rediscovery of the authority of the scriptures and what they teach and so they wanted to make the conscious point that if we are going to confess something, if we're going to say something, if we're going to believe something, it must be based on the scriptures. And so they have uh, the Holy Scriptures as chapter number one. And the first phrase of that chapter being really the summary phrase of um, the whole confession. Uh, so if you're looking for a super condensed version of the confession, uh, just read the first phrase. It says, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain and infallible rule of all saving, knowledge, faith and obedience. And we made the point last time that the... Um, the, the three words, sufficient, certain, infallible, and infallible, are to be modified by those two words, only and rule. Uh, so you could read it, uh, it is the only sufficient rule, it is the only certain rule, it is the only infallible rule. And then you do the same with the next phrase, of all saving knowledge, of all saving faith, of all saving obedience. And so we talked about that last time and how that works itself out. The one thing I wanted to just add to that discussion we had last time was the, on the word sufficient. Okay, so when the Bible says, um, uh, when, the, when the confession says that the Bible is the only sufficient rule, um, it's worth just thinking about what that means. Um, what is it sufficient for, is a good question to ask. Is the Bible sufficient 
to teach us how to perform brain surgery? No. Is the Bible sufficient to teach us how to build a house, a physical house? No. Is the Bible sufficient for teaching us how to um, learn to play the piano? No. What is the scripture sufficient for? The confession says it is sufficient for, in fact it is the only sufficient, certain and infallible rule for all saving knowledge, all saving faith and all saving obedience. And when it says all saving knowledge, faith and obedience, it's not simply talking about the things that must be believed in order to be saved. It's talking about all the knowledge, faith and obedience that is part and parcel of our faith as Christians. Not just the initial entry point through justification, what you must believe to be justified, but what you must hold to, believe in and obey in the entire breadth of salvation, in the progress of salvation. Because there are three senses in which we are saved, uh, a past, a present and a future, am I right? So we are justified in the past, saved in the past. We are sanctified in the present, being saved in the present. And we are glorified in the future, will be saved in the future. And so there's a sense in which um, salvation applies to all three. And that's the sense I think it's intending here. That um, scripture, scripture is the only sufficient, certain and infallible rule for the Christian life. From start to begin. From start to end. Make sense? Excuse me. So I want to um, try to finish this chapter today. I'm not going to go through every line anywhere near as detailed as that, but it was worth touching on that line in detail last week and this week. Uh, So the the rest of this paragraph, um, which you'll have there on the screen, is really trying to talk about the necessity of Scripture. It's about the necessity of Scripture. Uh, So, and it's saying that scripture is necessary for two reasons. It's necessary, first of all, because of the insufficiency of general revelation. And it's necessary also because the other kinds of special revelation have now ceased. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, We're talking, of course, about the difference between general revelation and special revelation. Can anybody be brave enough to tell me what the difference is between those two? General revelation is revealed to creation. Yes. Special revelation is revealed to the word of God. Amen. So the general revelation is general in the sense that it is given to everyone. It is generally given. And it comes through... Creation. It comes through uh, the conscience. It comes through providence. So let me just read the section. It says, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet uh, are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Okay? So, drawing a distinction between revelation that is general and revelation that is special. Special revelation being revelation that isn't given to everybody, but is given in, uh, at special times, in special ways, to special people, for special purposes. Okay? 
So the, the text that is being uh, referenced here would be, can anybody guess? Romans chapter 1. Um, has anyone got a Bible they'd be willing to read for us? Romans chapter 1 and verse 19 through 23. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in the thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what you'll find very helpful, if you want to just scroll down a little bit, Joe, um, there'll be some scripture references at the bottom of the page. Now, those uh, are not put there by the people who made the website. Those are put there uh, by the original writers of the confession. Okay? So those are their scripture references to back up what they uh, are wanting to argue for in the confession. Okay? Um, so you'll find uh, useful um, references there. But the idea being that general revelation, the, the revelation that comes to everybody, is... Sufficient to condemn, not sufficient to save. It's sufficient to condemn in the sense that it gives everybody a knowledge of who God is and what is owed to God. God is holy, God is good, he's powerful, he's creator. We have uh, obligations to him, we should have allegiance to him, and we have failed in our obligations. That's what general revelation does. General revelation is a reminder of the obligations that Adam had before God, that every human being has before God, and our failure regularly to obey those. And they come to us, as the confession says, uh, through the light of nature, through the works of creation, and of providence. So I don't know if we reflect on this often enough, but the way in which God um, providentially cares for this world also uh, reveals his goodness and his character and our obligation to him. The manner in which um, we can see things work out for a certain purpose in history uh, gives testimony to God. And it um, manifests his goodness, his wisdom and his power to leave men without excuse, yet it is not sufficient to give that knowledge of God uh, which is necessary unto salvation. Now, <clears throat> this ought to this is a very basic truth, but this ought to get us on our knees praising God, should it not? If God had not given us this book, we would be condemned through the knowledge that we have of God through creation. If we only had that knowledge and didn't have this, we would be in misery. We would be looking forward only to hell, only to punishment for sin. But God has spoken through special revelation and given us a means of salvation. I want you to remind yourself of that the next time you're thinking about skipping your quiet time. <laughs> the next time you're thinking about not reading your Bible for that day, recognize and remind yourself of just what has been given you in this book. Just what has been revealed to you in this book. It is worth our time and our attention. 
because it contains the way of salvation. Okay. So then um, the confession describes the type of revelation we're talking about. It says, Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times, various times, and in diverse manners, various different manners, to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. Okay? I just skipped over the word that because it makes it confusing. Uh, to declare his will unto his church. Now, how did he do this? How did he, in sundry times and diverse manners, reveal his will to the church? Let's name a few ways that special revelation comes to us. Can we name one? Other than scripture. Not through, other than scripture. What are the various ways that God has revealed his, himself, special revelation to the church? Or is, sorry? Prophecy. Okay, prophecy. So various prophets throughout the history of God's people have spoken God's word to God's people. Apostles would be another one, right? And a very similar uh, role being played there. Um, Jesus himself, right? Jesus Christ himself and the words that he spoke were a special revelation from God. So my point is simply to say that there are, there are, the way in which God began to overcome the problem of general revelation and its insufficiency has been through sending these individuals, prophets uh, and apostles and Christ himself to speak God's special revelation to us. And then it says this, uh, and afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the whole, the same whole unto writing, holy unto writing, to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways in God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Now, did you follow that? What it's saying is that in order to better preserve, that is to um, protect and pre prevent from being lost, in order to better propagate, that is to proclaim and preach, uh, and in order to be a more sure establishment and comfort for the church, God decided to write down his special revelation. Does that make sense? So the, the special revelation was there in... Uh, oral tradition was there in the prophetic um, utterances, was there in the apostolic witness and so on but for uh, a better preserving and propagating of the truth and for a more sure, now I'll, we're going to talk about that phrase in a minute, more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh the malice of Satan and of the world against the three great enemies of the church the world, the flesh and the devil in order to protect us against those things, we are given a more sure witness to God's special revelation by having it be written down. Okay? You're following what they're saying. You can see that they're saying things quite quickly, but they are saying a lot in what they're saying. Now, I want to just talk then about this phrase, more sure. Okay? When it says, for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church, uh, the scripture was written down. Um, is it easy to agree with that? You see, 
If we had uh, apostles in our churches, wouldn't we, uh, when we were looking for God's will, wouldn't we go to them first before maybe going to the scriptures? If we had real prophets in the church still today, wouldn't we go to them in order to look for God's will rather than going to the scripture? Let's say we had both. We had the scripture and we also had these prophets and these uh, apostles. If we are looking for the most sure testimony to God's special revelation, where would you, where would you consider going? It's an interesting question to ask, right? And what the confession is saying is that actually the more sure witness to God's special revelation is the scriptures. That the reason that apostles and prophets ceased and this came about as a replacement and a record of what they had to say is that we might have a more sure witness to the special revelation of God. That it might be a more sure means of establishing and comforting the church against the various enemies of the church after those former ways of God revealing himself having ceased. Now, there's another reference that is mentioned down the bottom, which I think is their, which is their um, proof text for this phrase and for this argument. See, it would be very tempting, I think, for us to... Um, say, well, I'm not sure that the scripture, the written form of the scripture, is a more sure um, presentation of special revelation. Surely it would be better to have Paul around still, or Isaiah around still. Wouldn't that be better? Uh, no. <laughs> According to scripture itself, scripture in its inscripturated form, in its written form, is better even than having the apostles themselves alive today is better even than hearing the very voice of God from heaven today. Because wouldn't that be better? You'd, you'd think, well, couldn't we just hear directly from God's voice audibly on a regular basis? Wouldn't that be a more sure witness to God's saving revelation? Scripture itself says no. That's not a more sure reference uh, to God's special revelation. Let me read to you Second uh, Peter 1, 19 and 20, which is the... Um, reference you've got down there at the bottom. Actually, to save my voice, would somebody else mind reading that for us? Second Peter chapter 1, and actually, can I just give you uh, more than just those two verses? Could you read from verse 16? Would someone mind going 16 to 21 of Second Peter 1? Scripture 
as a private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So um, my, I think the reason for their referencing this passage is because of a little phrase that we have in verse 19, which says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. In other words, what Peter here is saying is we were on the holy mountain. We saw Jesus Christ there. We saw him transfigured. We heard the voice from heaven say, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And yet we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed in what we are preaching to you now. We have the word more fully confirmed in that it has now been written down, it has now been received as scripture. Because if you think about it, if you were on the holy mountain and you saw a vision and you heard the voice from heaven and you tried to tell people about it, or even you tried to convince yourself that it happened, there would be doubts that would raise in your head. You would think, well, maybe I just was, uh, you know, a bit ill and uh, had a hallucination. Um, Maybe I um, ate some bad cheese or something like that, or, uh, you know, I breathed in something that made me hallucinate, or whatever it might be. Maybe it was a dream, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Um, You can't do that with Scripture, and with the inner witness of the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. Through this word, the Lord works perfectly. Through this word, the Lord speaks perfectly. And so Peter can say boldly that even though we were on the mountain, even though we heard it, that's not the most sure uh, um, witness to God's special revelation. Even words from heaven itself uh, are not the most sure version of special revelation. The most sure version is the inscripturated version. That's what Peter's saying. Any questions? Okay. We're going to rush through the rest of the chapter and um, finish it this morning. Um, I won't spend anywhere near as much time. So next, the next um, paragraph, if we could scroll through to that, uh, we have... Um, A comment on the canon, on the uh, identity of scripture. So paragraph two and paragraph three are all about what books are in the Bible and what books are not in the Bible. Um, And so you'll see a list of the Old Testament books and keep on going down, Joe, a list of the New Testament books. And then you'll have uh, in paragraph three, if you keep going, um, just a comment that says the uh, Apocrypha, Uh, are not part of the scriptures. Okay, so that's just identifying, and it is very important to identify um, in our confession what are and what are not. The question of canon is not one we think about that often. Uh, We just assume that, you know, if God has spoken, of course he's spoken in the Bible. Uh, But actually, there is another question we're skipping over. We can agree God has spoken, but we still need to ask the question, where has he spoken? Through what books has he spoken? And so the confession is giving a, a shorthand summary of the books that are being received as God's inscripturated revelation and what books are not to be received. And it doesn't go into any detail arguing for the case, but it just states states it plainly. Okay, jumping to the next um, paragraph. 
which is to do with the paragraph 4 and paragraph 5, which is to do with the authority of Scripture. Let me just read it to you. It says this, The authority of the Holy Scripture for which we ought to uh, be believed, which ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Okay, so this is in, in many ways a, um, a, a clarification on the um, Roman Catholic view that would say that the scriptures do depend on tradition, that the scriptures were written by uh, the church, that the scriptures were, were recognised and given their authority by the church councils and so on. Um, the uh, reformers were wanting to say, no, no, it's because it's the word of God, and that's the only reason that we believe that the scriptures are authoritative. Because God is truth itself. Now, you notice that phrase there. It says God, um, not by the church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself. Now, that's a, a glorious phrase, which is, which is worth pondering on. Um, scripture testifies to that in a number of places. Uh, 1 John 5.20, uh, John 14.6 and 7. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. And what it is essentially saying uh, in that phrase and in the biblical data is that it's not just that God never lies or that God conforms himself to the truth always, but that truth itself is defined by God. That truth is true because it conforms with who God is. That's what it's saying. That God is not subject to truth, but truth itself is true, and we know it to be true, insofar as it conforms to God. That if something is to be said which does not conform to God perfectly, on that basis we call it a lie and we call it an untruth. Does that make sense? Okay, that's what they're trying to say. So, and then uh, paragraph 5 uh, talks about how we know that the Bible is authoritative. And it's a glorious um, passage. I want to just read it to you. It says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. And the, heaven, and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Now, that's wonderful, isn't it? The, you know, you hear people um, try to defend and argue for the Bible being the word of God. They don't usually talk that way. They usually look at the historical reliability and all of these other things, which are good questions to ask and answer. But one of the things that the reformers and the writers of the confession were really most impressed by when looking at the scriptures, which made it so commendable as the word of God, is its internal qualities. It's perfection inside. It's unity. It's harmony. It's, it's the heavenliness of the matter that it is dealing with. These were things that they thought were the strongest arguments for the uh, divine origin of the scriptures. And then it carries on, though. It says, Yet notwithstanding any of that, our full uh, persuasion 
and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. That is to say, as you read it, what the Spirit teaches you, what the Spirit does in you, how the Spirit conform, uh, confirms it as the Word of God, that is the, that is the, um, the necessary and sure uh, way of full persuasion. That's how you get full persuasion. The other things might be supplementary, might be helpful, but full persuasion comes through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Okay, makes sense? Okay, quickly then moving on to ver- uh, paragraph 6. Thanks, Joe. Which is the statement on the sufficiency of the scriptures. It says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the holy scriptures, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now, if we just pause there for a moment, it's worth noticing a change that the 1689 Confession has made from the original Westminster Confession. So last week we talked about how the development, the historical development of this confession started with essentially the Westminster Confession in uh, 1646 and it um, uh, was adopted by the Congregational Church with the Savoy Declaration in in the 1650s. And then it was uh, adopted, uh, adapted again in the 1670s, 1677, and became the basis for the London Baptist Confession of Faith. They took the Westminster Confession of Faith and they made it Baptist, in other words. Okay? One of the things that's very interesting to notice is what changes they made to the original Westminster Confession of Faith. Why did they make those changes? Okay. So there's a significant change that's been made in this paragraph, which tells a story about what they're trying to communicate. So in the um, Westminster Confession, which you won't have in front of you, let me read the first part of the paragraph, and you tell me if you can notice the difference. So keep your eyes up here. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Now that's different, isn't it? The Westminster says, uh, all things necessary for God's glory, man's salvation, faith and life is expressly set down in scripture or necessarily contained in scripture. And then it says in the Westminster, unto which nothing can be added uh, by special revelation or tradition. So Westminster adds this phrase, or rather the Baptist Confession subtracts this phrase, uh, expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. That's what the Westminster says. Now, why do you think the Baptists deleted that? Because that's how the Presbyterian interpreted uh, infant baptism. That's how they argue it, that's why they use it in the Baptist. That's right. That's that's why uh, the pedo-baptists, those who want to baptise babies, that's how they argue that pedo-baptism is biblical. They think that pedo-baptism is biblical because it is a, quote, good and necessary consequence being deduced from the scriptures. So in other words, they take uh, infant circumcision from the Old Testament and they apply it to baptism. 
seeing it as a good and necessary consequence on the basis of infant circumcision. Make sense? Okay. And the Baptist said, well, no, we don't agree that that's good. We don't agree that's right. And so we're going to change the phrase, the key phrase that's used to back up that um, argument as a biblical argument and change it to um, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures. <coughs> Make sense? Okay. Neither, uh, nevertheless, we acknowledge the inner illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things uh, as are revealed in the Word and that there are many circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, uh, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Now, what it's simply saying there is, there are decisions that we're going to make to do with faith and life, which are not necessarily in the scriptures. They're not things that are to do with salvation, but they still are to do with faith and life. Uh, so, for example, the governance of the church uh, and uh, specific decisions that might be made about worship are not necessarily laid down in the Bible. So, for example, in our worship service today, do we start with the sermon or do we start with the song? The Bible doesn't tell us. Okay. So we just make the decision based on wisdom, what we think is um, in accordance with biblical principles. You know, we do that sort of thing. But we wouldn't say that if a sermon started the service, that would be wrong. Okay. Even though it is to do with um, faith and life, it's not laid out explicitly in the scriptures. Okay, paragraph 7 is to do with the clarity of scripture. All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things that are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other, uh, that not only the learned but the unlearned, that's helpful for me, uh, are in due use of ordinary means, that is by just reading the Bible and coming to church, may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Okay. And then we've got a comment on the um, availability in paragraph 8. I'm not going to read that. It basically says that it's okay to translate the Bible. That's a long paragraph that says we should translate the Bible. Uh, into um, languages that people can understand. Okay, moving down to uh, paragraph 9, um, it says this, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. Now that's very, very important. Okay, so these last two um, paragraphs are to do with how we use Scripture and especially how we use it to um, deal with controversies. The infallible rule for interpreting scripture, interpretation of scripture, is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true or full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Now, that's identical to how it reads in the Westminster Confession, and yet I would suggest that those who have come to the conclusion of pedo-baptism are not following that principle. Because what the Baptists have done is they've looked at the practice of infant baptism and they have said that the clear verses about baptism ought to be the, the guiding principle of interpretation. We shouldn't use verses that are of less applicable value, like verses about circumcision, as the clear guiding authority on what to do about baptism. Does that make sense? 
So the Baptist would say that we shouldn't answer the question of infant baptism on the basis of circumcision. We should answer the question of infant baptism on the basis of what the Bible says about baptism. Doesn't that make sense? Because the question of infant baptism came up. All the babies were being baptised by the Catholic Church for reasons that nobody really liked. Okay? So the reformers all wanted to change or deal with the question of infant baptism. Uh, and it was the Baptist reformers that said, let's not take circumcision as our guide, let's take the new, what the New Testament says about baptism as our guide. Makes sense. Okay. And then one more statement I'll read, and then we're done. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, uh, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to, uh, in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture uh, delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture is delivered. Uh, our faith is finally resolved. We read the scriptures to know what God wants us to believe. Amen? Any questions? So that's the first chapter of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It's the confession of faith that we subscribe to. It's, a, it's not the Bible, but it is a, a, what we think is man's best attempt to summarize the Bible in doctrinal form. Man's best attempt, not God's attempt. Man's best attempt to summarize the Bible in doctrinal form. Um, and it gives us a wonderful summary of the doctrine of Scripture. Any questions? Okay. Next week we will jump into of God and the Holy Trinity. That's the chapter to come. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, as we... Um, Think about your word and just how precious and special it is and how it does give such a full discovery of the way in which we might be saved, of the way in which we might relate to you as our God, how perfect it is, how heavenly are all of the matters it deals with, its excellencies through and through. We love it and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.